Isaiah chapter 29, reading from verse 1. Woe to Ariel, to Ariel the city where David dwelt. Add ye year to year, let them kill sacrifices. Yet I will distress Ariel, and there shall be heaviness and sorrow, and it shall be unto me as Ariel. And I will camp against thee round about, and will lay siege against thee with a mount, and I will raise forts against thee. And thou shalt be brought down, and shalt speak out of the ground, and thy speech shall be low out of the dust, and thy voice shall be as of one that hath a familiar spirit out of the ground, and thy speech shall whisper out of the dust. Moreover, the multitude of thy strangers shall be like small dust, and the multitude of the terrible ones shall be as chaff that passeth away. Yea, it shall be at an instant suddenly. Thou shalt be visited of the Lord of hosts with thunder and with earthquake and great noise, with storm and tempest and the flame of devouring fire. And the multitude of all the nations that fight against Ariel, even all that fight against her and her munition, and that distress her, shall be as a dream of a night vision. It shall even be as when an hungry man dreameth, and behold he eateth, but he awaketh and his soul is empty. Or as when a thirsty man dreameth, and behold he drinketh, but he awaketh, and behold, he is faint, and his soul hath appetite. So shall the multitude of all the nations be that fight against Mount Zion. Stay yourselves and wonder. Cry ye out and cry. They are drunken, but not with wine. They stagger, but not with strong drink. For the Lord hath poured out upon you the spirit of deep sleep, and hath clothed your, e your eyes the prophets and your rulers, the seers, hath he covered. And the vision of all is become unto you as the words of a book that is sealed, which men deliver to one that is learned, saying, Read this, I pray thee. And he saith, I cannot, for it is sealed. And the book is delivered to him that is not learned, saying, Read this, I pray thee. And he saith, I am not learned. Wherefore, the Lord saith, For as much as this people draw near me with their mouth, and with their lips do honour me, but have removed their heart far from me, and their fear toward me is taught by the precept of men, therefore, behold, I will proceed to do a marvellous work among this people, even a marvellous work and a wonder. For the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the understanding of their prudent men shall be hid. Woe unto them that seek deep to hide their counsel from the Lord, and their works are in the dark, and they say, Who seeth us, and who knoweth us? Surely your turning of things upside down shall be esteemed as the potter's clay. For shall the work say of him that made it, He made me not? Or shall the thing framed say of him that framed it, he had no understanding? 
Is it not yet a very little while, and Lebanon shall be turned into a fruitful field, and the fruitful field shall be esteemed as a forest? And in that day shall the deaf hear the words of the book, and the eyes of the blind shall see out of obscurity and out of darkness. The meek also shall increase their joy in the Lord, and the poor among men shall rejoice in the Holy One of Israel. For the terrible one is brought to naught, and the scorner is consumed, and all that watch for iniquity are cut off, that make a man an offender for a word, and lay a snare for him that reproveth in the gate, and turn aside the just for a thing of naught. Therefore thus saith the Lord who redeemed Abraham concerning the house of Jacob, Jacob shall not now be ashamed, neither shall his face now wax pale. But when he seeth his children, the work of mine hands in the midst of him, they shall sanctify my name and sanctify the Holy One of Jacob and shall fear the God of Israel. And they also that erred in spirit shall come to understanding and they that murmured shall learn doctrine. Amen. May God bless to us this reading from his word. It is not my desire to frighten anyone. On the contrary, I consider it my chief calling to be a comfort to the Lord's people and an encourager of the saints. And yet, let us all be willing to examine our own hearts and to test our motives in coming to the Lord with our worship. We have encountered Isaiah making exactly this point previously. In chapter 1, verse 12, Isaiah quotes the Lord asking those who present themselves before him, When ye come to appear before me, who hath required this at your hand to tread my courts? Now we're going to be making some comments about some of the things that Isaiah says in this chapter today. But before we criticise others, before we make reference to the woe of Ariel bringing insincere sacrifices to the Lord, and before we judge those of whom the Lord says, with their lips do honour me, but have removed their heart far from me. We should do as Paul encourages us to do, and we should examine ourselves and examine our own reasons by the light of God's word for coming to worship him. Let us come, brothers and sisters, let us come because we love the Lord. 
We love him because he first loved us. Let us come because we love his gospel truth. Psalm 25 verse 5 says, Lead me in thy truth and teach me, for thou art the God of my salvation. On thee do I wait all the day. Let us come to worship the Lord because we love the brethren and we long to be with the Lord's people. By this, says the Lord Jesus Christ, shall all men know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And we come together to mutually encourage one another and to stand with one another in the presence of our God. And while we come, let us remember that God is a spirit and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. And let us remember that without faith it is impossible to please God. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is and that he is the rewarder of them that diligently seek him. And in all this, let us come upon the footing of the cross. Let us come upon the testimony of the one who declared, I am the way, the truth and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. It is to the Lord Jesus Christ that we look as we bring our worship before the Lord. And this was the problem that Isaiah identified in Jerusalem in his own day. The Jews in the days of Isaiah and afterwards had transformed their divine privileges into mere religious rituals. They had forsaken spiritual wisdom for worldly reason and worldly gain. They became preoccupied with the act of coming to God rather than the glory and the beauty of the one to whom they came. Let me say that again. They became preoccupied with the act of coming to God rather than the glory and the beauty of the one to whom they came. And we can see that progressing even into the experience of the Jews at the time of Christ. These men had the scriptures, they had the law, they had the prophets, they had the history, they had the heritage, they had the oracles and every evidence of God's goodness that had been revealed to the people in the promises and in the experiences of the children of Israel down through the centuries. They had every encouragement to faith in Christ by our Saviour's words and works and his character. But when the Lord Jesus Christ came to them, they did not even recognise him. 
And I fear today that there are many of whom the Lord speaks when he says, They draw near me with their mouth and with their lips do honour me, but have removed their heart far from me and their fear toward me is taught by the precept of men. There are those who go to church because they like the company. There are those who go to church because it is the practice that they have been raised into. There are some who go because they like the music, because they like the entertainment, because they like the particular wisdom and insights of the preacher that comes before them. But let us remember that it is no value in coming to the presence of coming into the presence of the Lord with our mouth and with our lips honouring him if our hearts are far from him. And it is only as we come before him in faith with an eye to the Lord Jesus Christ that we find the true acceptance, the reconciliation and the union that we desire in the Lord. I have got four reasons from this chapter that I want to set before you today, four lessons from this passage by which Isaiah encourages us, the Lord's people, with views of the Saviour, so that despite the widespread empty religious activity that was present in Isaiah's day, was present in the Lord's day and has afflicted the Lord's people down through the ages of the church. Despite that widespread empty religious activity, true spiritual understanding is not lost. Here are four things that Isaiah teaches us in this chapter by which we may lay hold on the blessedness of our spiritual union with God in the Lord Jesus Christ. The first one that we are going to think about is that our sovereign Lord is gathering his people today. Isaiah, as we have seen throughout this prophetic book, is constantly turning the eyes of God's remnant people to the promises of their omnipotent God. He frequently comes back to this little phrase, in that day, in that day. Why does he do that? Because he is, by repetition, emphasising that the Lord has not forgotten his promises. Isaiah mentions Ariel. That's a, a kind of poetic word for Jerusalem. We know that expressly because he goes on to say that it is the place where David lived. Now David had made Jerusalem his royal capital and so Ariel is a reference to Jerusalem. But the very fact of drawing upon David's name in connection with Jerusalem reminded 
the faithful few among the people, the, the remnant people, the elect people of God, reminded them of the glory days of David. When the nation of Israel was blessed of God, when, when uh, its borders were increased, when its wealth and its riches uh, were uh, increased, and when they had at their head a man who was beloved of God and who wrote and he was no perfect man by any means and his testimony in scripture uh, attests that. But he was a man after God's own heart. And Israel was blessed under David's leadership. But here we see a backslidden nation now. Here we see a nation that had forgotten their God, who still went through the ritual, still followed the patterns, but their heart was no longer in it. Israel had become a backslidden heifer. But Isaiah is reminding the people that David's God is still on his throne, even although David's throne has been usurped and the glory of the nation and the glory of the temple had been lost to infidels and foreigners. Now I dare say that the Lord's elect have always been a tried and a tested and a persecuted, even a questioning and fearful people. But in the decades and in the centuries that followed Isaiah's prophecy, many must have wondered as they saw these great nations, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, ultimately the Romans, coming against Jerusalem. Many of the Lord's faithful people must have wondered if their hopes of the Messiah were misplaced and misconstrued. Did we get this wrong? And it was to these mourners in Zion, these hard-pressed, faithful remnant people that Isaiah is writing when he says in verse 17 Lebanon shall be turned into a fruitful field Lebanon Lebanon was a forest it was the it was the last thing that you would think of in comparing it to a cultivated garden it was wild, it was uncultivated land. This was no fruitful vineyard. That's true, says Isaiah, but it will be, and it will be the Lord's doing. Isaiah was not talking about planting crops and husbandry. He was talking about the fact that the Lord would make Lebanon and the borders beyond Lebanon a fruitful place for the gospel of Jesus Christ. It would become a fruitful field in as much as Jerusalem had become an unfruitful field. 
that the Lord would gather his people, that he would build his church, but it would be Gentiles that would largely populate his courts. And when the Jews rejected the Messiah, the Gentiles embraced the gospel. Isaiah tells the people, the blind would see, not not physically, not the physically blind, though it is true Christ healed the blind to demonstrate the point that Isaiah was making, but the spiritually blind would see with spiritual sight. The deaf would hear, not the physically deaf, though again, The Lord Jesus Christ healed the deaf to demonstrate the point. But the spiritually deaf would hear and believe the gospel when it was preached. When the apostles took this message to the ends of the earth, the Lord made Lebanon a fruitful garden. The meek and the poor would rejoice in the Lord the Lord that Israel had forgotten. And these are the blessed meek and the blessed poor of whom the Lord speaks in Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, who would inherit the earth and possess the kingdom of God. The Lord Jesus Christ was demonstrating to the remnant people of his day what the remnant people of Isaiah's day had heard from the lips of the prophet and had believed and had trusted. It was as if Isaiah was saying to the people of the Old Testament dispensation, let not your heart be troubled. Despite what it looks like, our sovereign Lord is gathering his people. And that's something that we should remember today as well. Here is the second thing that Isaiah tells to these folk. He says, Empty religion shall be destroyed. Legalism, empty facade, superficial religion and faith, self-righteousness will not prevail over true heart and soul faith. The elect in Isaiah's day and afterwards must have wondered if the candle of true faith would ultimately fail. It seemed to flicker, it seemed to sputter. Christ said, I am the light of the world. But the Pharisees, they sought to extinguish the light of grace under the yoke of rules and instructions and man-made laws. And things haven't changed much. Christ brings liberty, but there are plenty of religious groups that demand codes of conduct and rules of association and evident marks of obedience. And Isaiah describes these self righteous religionists in verse 21 as they that watch for iniquity 
They watch for iniquity. That is, not in their own lives, but in the lives of others. They look, they examine one another's lives to see whether or not they're falling short of the standards that they should be keeping to. He, 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 he goes on, that they make a man an offender for a word. They lay a snare for him. So the, the, the person that tries to serve the Lord, they lay snares for him to catch him out. They turn aside, that is, they condemn the just for a thing of naught. They condemn the Lord's little ones, the Lord's justified people for nothing. And they, they marginalise them and they cast them off and they, they bring their, their, their recriminations against them. I wonder if you can in any way associate with that form of religion. You know, just because it's, I don't know, a foreign religion, or just because it's a, 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 an, a different denomination, doesn't mean to say that there is not an emptiness about it. There are plenty of professing Christian churches that have at their heart the rules of men and not the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it must always be our desire to come before the Lord on the footing of the cross of Jesus Christ. Did you notice that it was the just whom these legalists attack? Who is it that makes these people just? Who makes them righteous? Because that's what justified means. To be justified is to be righteous before God. It is to be accounted righteous by God. That's what it means to be justified. Who makes these people righteous? Well, it is the Lord who makes them righteous. There may even be some validity in the allegations that these legalists make against the just, against the Lord's little ones. But remember this, brothers and sisters, God justifies the ungodly. He doesn't justify the godly. He justifies the ungodly. Romans chapter 4 verse 5. Remember this, brothers and sisters, Christ died for the ungodly. Romans 5 verse 6, the Lord Jesus Christ did not die for the godly. The essence of our hope as believers is not that we live without sin, but that God has taken our sin away and God has made us righteous. He has justified us in Christ. And if God has justified his elect, there isn't anyone can lay anything to our charge. Paul says in Romans 8 verse 1, There is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. If we walk in Christ by faith, we walk after the Spirit. And the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanseth us 
from all sin. The empty religion of legalism has no fear for the justified whose whole righteousness is in Jesus Christ. That's the second point. Here's another thing that Isaiah says in order to encourage the Lord's remnant people. Redemption accomplished means true spiritual worship recovered. Redemption accomplished means true spiritual worship recovered. Isaiah tells us in verse 22 that Abraham was redeemed by the Lord. So let there be no misunderstanding about this. Abraham is in heaven today because he was redeemed by the Lord Jesus Christ. All his sins were washed away in Christ's blood on the cross. Now it is true. It is true that the Lord brought Abraham from Ur of the Chaldees. But that's not his redemption. It's also true that the Lord freed him from idolatry and superstition. But that isn't redemption either. The Lord delivered him from many evils and many dangers. But that's not redemption. The Lord saved Abraham with an everlasting salvation in and by the Messiah on the cross. By his blood, according to his purpose, in grace and in mercy. Thus Isaiah preached, using the example of Abraham, the gospel of blood redemption and effectual substitutionary atonement. Isaiah preached the gospel to his generation and he encouraged them with promises of the coming Messiah that just as Abraham had been redeemed, predicated upon the death of the Messiah, so their hope should be in Christ. And like Abraham, the people of Isaiah's day, the remnant people, the elect of God believed God and God counted it to them for righteousness. Not their faith, not their believing, but he counted the blood of Christ to them for righteousness. He counted Christ's righteous obedience unto death to them for righteousness. He imputed righteousness to them. They were righteous in his sight because they trusted in the efficacious work of Jesus Christ. The great Redeemer, he sprung from Abraham. He took the nature of the seed of Abraham. He represented men and women. He suffered for them. He died and he cleansed them from all sin. And Isaiah's hearers, heard this gospel about blood redemption and they believed God's word. And in this way, through blood redemption, Christ tells us, 
in John chapter 4 verse 23 the hour cometh and now is when the true worshippers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth for the Father seeketh such to worship him how do we come before the Lord how is it that we enter into the Lord's presence how is it possible that we can be reconciled and acceptable in his sight because we are righteous in the righteousness of Christ because we have the righteousness of God granted to us so true worship is a function of the redemption of Jesus Christ and here's the last point and with this we're done all God's people says Isaiah shall be taught of the Lord they also that erred in spirit, it's the very last verse of our chapter. They also that erred in spirit shall come to understanding, and they that murmured shall learn doctrine. All God's people shall be taught of the Lord. You here today, you who, who come and take part in this service, this little group, you are a constant encouragement to me. You have shown your appetite for the gospel. You have shown by your presence here that you are eager and willing to learn doctrine. And why not? These truths are only the history of our beloved Saviour's dealings with his wayward people. We have erred in spirit. We have rebelled in our actions, in our words, in our thoughts. We can look back in our lives and we can say, Oh Lord, how did it get like that? Isaiah says it like this, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. But we have been bought by such a price. For the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. We have been secured under such a contract that we now delight to hear the terms of that contract over and over and over again. We love to rehearse the particulars. We love to discover the details that are in the small print because that's our doctrine. I began by saying that I don't want to scare anyone. But what it is that most comforts the Lord's elect, what it is that brings peace to our hearts in this old sinful fallen world, is simply the gospel of free and sovereign grace in Jesus Christ. That's it. That's what gives us peace. That's what comforts our souls. Listen to what God the Father promised God the Son under the terms of the everlasting covenant. He says in Isaiah 54 verse 13, 
All thy children shall be taught of the Lord, and the great and great shall be the peace of thy children. True peace in this life and in the next is to be had by hearing, believing and obeying the gospel of God. May the Lord teach us these truths and bless our hearts in them. Amen.